we looked at what if in the future AI took over what most judges do, because judges make decisions generally on precedence. Wow. So a good algorithm can do that for you. The role of judge then said, well, what happens? Well, the judge becomes the philosopher, social policymaker, and spending far less time on doing the kind of things a good AI system could do. You're tuned in to Evolve, a series dedicated to the evolution of technology, society, and business. Host Aaron Spinley and his extraordinary international guests bring you front row seats to digital Darwinism, get you a backstage pass to the experience economy, and take you to the VIP after party with the rock stars of growth strategy. Let's get into the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Listen, I've got to say, this is a super important episode in the series of season one. What if I told you that less than 10% of all corporate strategy is achieved? Think about that for a moment. Less than 10% of brand strategy, of marketing strategy, your customer engagement strategy, your product strategy, your boardroom strategy, less than 10% is achieved. Now, what if I also told you that there is empirical evidence that a particular field, a particular set of methodologies, has shown to increase profitability by up to 33% and market cap by up to 200%. Let me introduce you to the practical application of the study of futures to business. I'm talking about futurology the practice of foresight, the study of futures. I'm talking about true futurists. Today on the show, I am absolutely privileged to be joined by Professor Sahail Anayatollah. Sahail is the chair of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, and he's a professor at many universities around the world. He's an author many times over in this subject and in fact is the inventor of a method called causal layered analysis or CLA which is a critical part of futures methodology today. And look, Sahal is not just a leading thinker in the field of futures but he's regarded as one of the all-time leading minds in the field ever. In fact, in 2010 he was awarded the Laurel Award for the all-time best futurist. <laughs> well, today I couldn't be more excited to be joined by Sahail and I really, really encourage you, if you're a brand leader, a marketer, an executive, someone in the boardroom, listen into this episode. There is so much goodness and so much to learn. Let's get into it. Well, Sahal, it's really great chatting to you again. Thank you for joining joining the show, Evolve. It's, it's really nice to see you again. Oh, great seeing you, Aaron. So there's some wonderful titles that you have and some wonderful achievements and accomplishments in your career, but, but really the titles are just titles and they never really do justice to the human being. And I'd, I'd really love just to start with, with getting a, giving the audience a, a sense of who you are and, and the sort of work that, that you do. I mean, one way to say it, what do I miss most during the quarantine? <laughs> so I miss most body surfing. Right. I miss most swimming. So the other day I was in the shower and I just pretended to swim. I thought, okay, that's what I can do. 
<laughs> uh, I miss most being able to play basketball on a court with four, six people. So yeah. that type of movement activity, I really enjoy. What I'm able to still do is meditation, yoga, and of course, walk around. So those things are still working. I'm very happy with those. What I like most about this space personally is the slowing down. Where I felt that my life last year was all about flying to different parts of the world and giving speeches on futures. It was a week in Kazakhstan, then Cambodia, then Norway, uh, KL, Bangkok. So it was really intense because so many people, when things are uncertain, want to know about the future. Yeah. So this is the kind of phase personally that I really enjoy. And I've got involved in future studies. I think I was 18 when I took a course in how to think about the future. It was in 1976. Wow. And then just segued on and on to becoming, you know, a field. And you were, you were born in Pakistan and yes. you then lived in a, in a number of places, right? Yeah, from Pakistan, we moved, we went for shower and moved to Indiana. My main memory of that is being very small and everyone smoking and really feeling sick all the time. And then <laughs> there was a brilliant piece I read in 2006 in The Australian. They said in 1994, the Australian government put a few hundred thousand dollars in anti-smoking campaigns. Okay. Um, no, it was a few hundred million dollars, I think. I'll find the citation. And then they looked at a study that said, what, how much money did they save? And it was in the billions. In terms of less time in hospitals, more time with family, more productivity. Right. So at that time, it was expensive to spend money on let's stop smoking in the mid-90s, right? And 10 years later, the prevention leads to a measurable up outcome. So this is kind of where I like futures. Yeah. What are the policy based on solid science? What things can we change that lead to a better future for all? And look, I think this is one of the things I really like about your work and, and your career is that you've taken a, a, a space and, and it's always been practical, I think. But it's easy for a lot of folk to sometimes dismiss areas of academic study as kind of just sort of a, you know, academic only pursuit. But you've done a lot of work making this very practical and pragmatic for organisations. And I was really interested when I first looked at your background some time ago, that you, you did a lot of work in the court system in Honolulu. And I'm just wondering if you can share some stories there, the work that you did there. I mean, officially it was how to ensure the courts meet the changing needs of the public. Right. So the administrator, right. Lester Sinkate, he figured out the rate of technology is changing. Courts are history-based. How do I get people in the courts to understand we just can't do things the way we used to do them. So that became his insight and he got all of us who started to think about, well, what's next? So we looked at mediation instead of always litigation, what would mediation look like? We looked at what if in the future AI took over what most judges do? Because judges make decisions generally on precedence. Wow. So a good algorithm can do that for you. The role of judge then said, well, what happens? Well, the judge becomes the philosopher, social policymaker, and spending far less time on doing the kind of things a good AI system could do. So this is in the 80s. So we were trying to inform the courts, here's how the world is changing, here's what you need to do differently. And, and then we realized we did some regression analysis that showed that we could help the judges get a pay rise. Right. Okay. And suddenly they loved this. So my insight 
years <laughs> later was this, you know, this is the reality, right? Yeah. My insight years later was to do this, uh, these different zones. So zone one is the immediate horizon one. So the organization needs some runs about today. Otherwise they're anxious. They're freaked out. Horizon three is just long-term. What would the AI mediated justice system look like? How would that improve? the life of citizens and the life of judges and attorneys. And zone two is this anxiety. We're changing quickly. What do we do differently? I remember one of the tense moments was, you know, we had learned in foresight who's not in the room, right? So the blind spot is who's not in the room. So we're doing global strategy, horizon scanning. What have I missed? So I asked the director, I said, well, I would love if we can get some felons in the hotel conference room because they offer us a different perspective on the future of crimes and prisons. And the director who was already, you know, we were pushing him so far, he said, now you want me to bring in prisoners in our conference? <laughs> and then he listened. He said, the logic is perfect. Tell me who will pay for the insurance. <laughs> you know, so he, and I said, you're right. I don't know. You know, I have no idea. What I, you know, I don't know yeah. how to solve that. But that was kind of one of the big insights is, you know, when you're trying to be progressive, you want inclusion. How do you do it? Today we have Skype, but in 1990 at a conference, we didn't. Yeah. And so there's, there's this progression, right, from Indiana and those things that you were experiencing as a child and then your interest grew and then you just have amazing, you know, a decade in Honolulu and those systems. And now you sort of fast forward to today and you're the chair of UNESCO, um, which is like an amazing organization on, on surface. Tell us a little bit about that role. So this was after Hawaii, I moved to Brisbane and then moved to the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Right. And if Hawaii, I went after 10 years in the justice system, I went back and did my PhD focusing on the philosopher P.R. Sarkar. He was an Indian philosopher and he was dealing with big chunks of time, the next 500 years, the next thousand years. Wow. How do we link spiritual change with AI, with robotics? And so it's kind of big picture stuff. And then when I moved to Australia, I remember in Brisbane, they were like, yeah, but this is Australia. Tell us how this works. <laughs> so it went from heavy theory to, okay, you know, tell us how this is going to work. And so that was fantastic for me in terms of taking tough ideas and making them actionable. So I really appreciated, you know, action learning, anticipatory action learning, projects with hundreds of organizations in the last 20 years in terms of doing futures. The UNESCO part is UNESCO has a system of academic chairs. There's physics, there's genomics, there's futures literacy. And so they appoint these chairs as a way to mold the theoretical debate, mold the next steps. And so I'm one of those chairs. Uh, And the ultimate goal, of course, with all the chairs in futures is to build an anticipatory systems at the global level. So things like pandemics are easier to spot, and not just to spot, because we've been working with Biosecurity Australia for 15 years from agriculture. Every meeting, one of the vets would say, the next zoonotic incident is going to be the big one. Right. There's not one meeting I went to where someone didn't say that. And even if you say that, and you, can, you have the anticipatory system, how do you get that voice you know, to the key decision maker? Because for them, they're busy in the moment, right? Yeah. So getting them to be ready for the next pandemic is a far more difficult sell. So UNESCO idea is, well, 
let's create these networks of knowledge that are anticipatory in nature. So yes, we have scholars focused on yesterday, today, but we have some scholars always imagining the alternative futures and building in those systems to how organizations do things day to day. And I get it for the normal business person. Okay, you want me to figure out the next 10 years, I have to pay bills today. Right. And, and right. there's always that tension, right? How do I yeah. resolve tomorrow with today? So that's kind of what we try to do. I think that helps people in the sense that if they understand that if you've got this set of methodologies that can help you tackle these major challenges, then those methodologies should, as you kind of talked about with your experience coming to Australia, how do we scale that into businesses? And, and I think there's a lot of folk that are interested in, in, in that linkage as well. I mean, I look at reality and see what's underneath it. So we right. were looking at global food safety. Okay. And so I was with 70 scientific experts. And they said our role is to anticipate the next food crisis. So we send out surveys to experts around the world and have them think, what do you think is next? And then they looked at me and said, when we get okay. them back, we get nothing. So this became very clear to me. You're asking people to respond to something they don't know. So they don't have futures literacy yet. So that's phase one. How do I become futures literate? Now, phase two was, I said, first get them futures literate, then they can respond intelligently. And the second part is in the organization, then how do they respond once they get the data? So the data only makes sense if you have a narrative that understands the data. And this is the tough part. You have to have a narrative that can make sense of the data. During the tsunami, the big Asian tsunami, I think 257,000 people died. The Hawaii Meteorological Center sent a fax to Southeast Asia. And I won't say the country, I don't want to blame anyone. Sure. The director that got the fax, it said, tsunami coming, please get ready immediately. He got the fax, threw in the garbage. And they later said, why? That was the eight hours. You could have saved 50,000 lives. We don't know how many. He said, we don't get tsunamis in the Indian Ocean. So he didn't have the narrative that this was possible. Right. So this is, is not just giving people data because if they don't have a worldview around data, they won't know what to do. We yeah. saw this with COVID-19 here. Uh, the prime minister of Australia wisely stopped by them from China, right? You know, we know that's where it started. But because he had a worldview that we won't be getting diseases from US, USA and Europe, he let those continue. Right. They, you know, they have a view about stopping the boats, but stopping luxury liners. They don't have a worldview that could be dangerous. Right. Right. So That's this very interesting. Is, and this is so you give them data, but they look at the data. That doesn't data doesn't make sense because I don't have a framework to understand the data. So many of the wicked problems our role, and everyone brings a role in, is one, who's not in a room? Two, how do I change the story so the data makes sense to me so that I can act, act decisively? Yeah. And look, I think anyone in a business setting or in a strategy setting would be listening to you talk about that and relating straight away to organizational dynamics and, you know, the politics of why things get done or don't get done or why certain things get listened to or not listened to. And, and so you've got um, pillars and processes, which I think are really useful. Could you talk through those? Sure. So we have the six pillars framework. So pillar one is mapping the future. 
So I need to first know what's my map, what's pulling me, where do I want to go, what's pushing me, is it AI, changing consumer needs, and what are the weights, what's stopping me? Is it my CFO, is it my chair, what's stopping me from achieving the vision? Is it my lack of knowledge? So first we map the future, that's pillar one. Pillar two is anticipating. So in a normal map, I don't need to change every year, right? But in future space, we have to change every year. Right. It's the rate of technology, demographic shifts, rise of China, peer-to-peer, pandemic, you name it, there's a shift. So we're always thinking, how is my map gonna change? How do I get to be robust, agile, ready for the change? So that's kind of pillar two. Pillar three is, well, when you bring in novelty, some people say, well, I've seen this before. So my favorite joke is when people say you're decentralized, they say, well, how do we change? Well, you centralized. When you're centralized, how do we change to decentralized? So pillar three is, is this novel or wait, same old stuff. Yeah. So we're going deeper saying, is this a real change or is this an old change? So we have people now writing about the pandemic saying, wait a second, we go to the 14th century in Europe, there was a massive plague which changed the European system and led to all, you know, all these novelties. So they're using the past in a deep way to think about the future. Pillar four, we were talking about earlier, what's the narrative? If my problem is lack of profits, what's my story underneath that? If my problem is I'm not connecting to the minister, what's my underlying story? So this is where we link story to strategy, otherwise culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. I had one senior Australian scientist, brilliant person saying, I'm trying to convince the minister about beyond meat, about in cellular agriculture, new types of food. And Australia needs to be ready for this food revolution. And he said, but when he meets the minister, he understands how the minister sees me as a flunky. <laughs> I see myself as a scientist. He sees me as just this weird guy walking in the room. So then he said, aha, uh-huh, so our narratives don't align. If I wish to make a change, I have to change the way I think about this problem. Pillar five is scenarios. Meaning none of us know the future. We develop three, four scenarios that helps us map the uncertainty. And pillar six is, where do I wish to go? What do I do Monday morning to make the difference? Right. You've spoken about the Monday morning problem, right? And it's probably that universal thing. That's just the human nature um, that, that comes in. Um, and, and often that's just what we're doing today. We're all excited about, but as we, move into execution, like strategy setting's fun, execution's not so much fun. And, and that's really the definition of that Monday morning problem, yeah? So, I mean, this is something working with Rob Burke at Melbourne Business School, this is something we always focus on. So how do I get very bright people to think about Monday morning in novel ways? So way one, we say horizons. Monday morning is gonna be horizon one, you need to do it keep remembering horizon through the next 10 years, your purpose, your vision. There's one amazing group in South Africa when we did this work, they were so busy and they said, I said, what's your narrative? They said, pummeled by the present. Well, that can't be fun. You show up Monday morning and the present is hitting you all day. So they think, what's a better narrative that gets you to think differently? They said, a flock of eagles. United, can see far, can see in detail, that changed their national strategy. So that's option one, Monday morning. Go from the horizon, focus on one, to a deeper horizon. 
Option two is action learning, which is the strength of Australian business. So we had one project in rural Australia. They gave me 50 CEOs in the health system. And we came up with this amazing vision for 2030. 5P, partnership, participation, precision, personalized prevention, entire new medical system. And one of the changes would be, of course, then we don't need so many hospitals as the home in a way becomes a hospital. The home becomes your health prevention center. Right. And so that's great for 2030, 2040. Australia will be world's number one leading it. And then someone in the Department of Health called and said, this is great. What do I do Monday morning? <laughs> and then when I talked to the director of the room, he goes, this is really great. But you do realize we can't get elected on stopping hospitals in rural Australia. That's not a winner. And so we agree with the vision. It's participatory. This is great. We're cutting edge. But let's be realistic. Monday morning, our heads are going to be cut off. Yeah. But then we went to action learning. So we stopped the meeting. I said, who has an idea that can move the vision to reality? Ten people raised their hands. I could stand around the room and pitch your idea. At the end of it, seven people were still standing. So they all pitched their ideas. What would a prevention metrics look like? What would a home hospital look like? Et cetera, et cetera. Then at the end of the meeting, the CEO stood up and said, all seven projects are fully funded. Wow. So this went from vision to prototype. You need a budget strategy. So this, I mean, you talk a lot about, obviously, worldviews, and we'll come to CLA and talk a bit, a bit, a bit about that as well. Um, the thing for me that, that really, when I was learning from you those few years ago and continue to read your material and this challenge around where worldviews or when worldviews are set in quite young ages for us, which then sort of become difficult to break out of paradigms. I'm really just interested if you could comment a little bit about that human constraint or those societal constraints that, that limits the way that we form worldviews or at least, you know, um, limit our ability to think more widely. You know, I had a course I was running a few days ago, had this brilliant director. And then I said, so what's the issue you're facing? So level one was the issue he was facing. He goes, I'm nervous now going on social media. So that's level one analysis. I said, what's level two analysis? Well, level two analysis was, we started to talk about, well, I don't know how to use social media. I love to express myself, but I'm afraid people won't understand me. The organization doesn't support it. So that's level two analysis. And I said, what's the origin event? He goes, well, I remember when I was young, I gave a speech and I mispronounced my R's and everyone started laughing. And now in the social, I feel anxious. So then we went to the metaphor was the person who messes up. He had a much better metaphor. And I said, okay, let's transform the story. So there's an origin event that creates the fear, the anxiety. And we try to figure that out to create the alternative future. Otherwise, the future just becomes an empty story because we go back to what we knew. Yeah. And the disruptions force us to shift. So that what we always knew is called the used future. It's a practice we keep on doing. It doesn't work, but we keep on doing it. Yes. Very and common. Then, yeah. And we keep on doing it until reality hits us in the face. This isn't working. So we've been talking about digital education, you know, like 15 years now. And now suddenly, oh, my God, I need to figure this out. I mean, we've been talking about an online course, and now we have one that just starts Monday. Right. So, you know, it took that event to challenge our use future. 
Yeah. And that's happening in a lot of industries and a lot of, there's a lot of big retailers around the world and, and a number in Australia that have been really caught short in terms of that capability, which is something that they probably should have been executing on for a little while now or growing towards, but they've stayed in that paradigm of we've got to sweat the store assets, right? Yeah. And so yes. we're getting to this point now where the pandemic is changing the world really, really quickly. And that's that point of crisis or distress. Yeah, that forces us. I mean, and if we go to pillar five, we don't know the future. So this is where the scenarios come in. The scenarios work we've done on COVID-19, we had scenario one with zombie apocalypse. Yeah. It feels that way. It's a, of course, there's no zombies out there, but it feels dangerous, risky, What's you know what version of Australia is going through? It feels risky when I mean, things are going bankrupt. So that's kind of scenario one. Scenario two, we had the pause before the jump. So everything slows down this year in order to speed up next year. So we really don't change. We just take a year off. Yeah. And next year, back to business as usual. Then we thought, well, what's scenario three? Scenario three is this is not the pause and back to usual. This is the pause that changes everything. So scenario three is business as unusual. So we think through, here's the things we're going to keep. Here's what we're going to change. Is this really a global health revolution? So someone wrote the war against the pandemic is not the best metaphor. The best metaphor is what's the message I need to receive for my business, my family, my person. What are the core messages? So that changes it. And then scenario four is, well, this is going to be zones of opening, zones of closure. It's the back and forth. Right. So there's no vaccine. We can already see this discussion. We'll be able to travel to New Zealand. Clearly going to the U.S. or Europe will be out. So scenario four is it's like a seven-year figuring it out. But no one quite knows the answer. Will it really be online or will it be basically some online, some face-to-face? -face? We're exploring this new area. Right. The utility there is people say, what's the answer? What's the future? And our response is, well, we don't know. We can work with you to look at the data to say, here's three, four different directions that could go in and explore your business in every one of those futures. Right. And that's a skill set. That's right. Future one, zombies are coming. How do I hide? Future two, what assets do I get rid of? What assets do I grow? How do I get ready for 2021, 2022? In future three, no, I'm going to change who I am. I'll change who I work with. I'll be part of the big transformation, a greener, sustainable planet. In future four, well, we're going to have to be agile because we don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to be ready for anything. Yeah. And when things get bad, we won't let depression overrun us. We'll keep on thinking this too will pass. Yeah. And look, that's obviously very timely, but it's also such a wonderful example of how organizations can think about alternative future scenarios think about them critically, prepare, prepare for them in the right ways. And there's that Rulebuck report from 2017 that says that, you know, futures preferred firms have got 30%, sorry, 33%, yes. I think it was, higher profitability and up to 200% um, greater market cap growth. And this is why, right? Because it's the ability to have that wider lens, that wider, be able to see the field of play. I think so many organisations just can't see the field of play sometimes. The thing I like about a lot of your work is that um, you teach um, some very practical ways to, to help 
organizations and people think through this stuff and make it real for them. And I'm just wondering if we could touch on a few of them for, for folk here. And I'd like to start with the, the futures triangle. You, you talked a little bit about that before, um, but perhaps give that a little bit more depth. So I remember one museum I was working with many years ago and we said, okay, what's the future that you want? And they imagined themselves the co-curated AI, very green. So futures triangle is very much saying, what's the pull of the future? What's the push of the present and the weight of history? So this organization, they were looking to rethink the museum. I think this was five, six years ago. And there's many ideas, but the idea that really jumped out was, well, we let the public co-curate it. And so that's now becomes the image. So it's citizen curated museum. Normally culture is curated by the experts, right? Right. This is, no, we're going to allow the non-experts in. Now the push of that, I said, well, okay, that's a great idea. Is there something pushing this? Well, younger people have apps and they want access and they want to be empowered. Technology is fast enough to allow us to do that. We have success stories around the world of products not being done by the innovator, but co-created products. Okay, that's a push. Then we said, what's the weight? And the weight became very clear. It was a professor of curation. And she was like, wait a second. So you're going to get rid of all of us? And how do you know what the public comes up with isn't junk? <laughs> so this map then got modified. So it's okay, what parts of our product do we co-curate? What part do we let the experts do? And that became a very powerful conversation. So this is where the triangle becomes the opening way, very simple, everyone loves it, it's an easy way to move forward. You use the S-curve a fair bit in your work as well, don't you? Can you explain that a little bit? So if I have the map of the CBD carless area, right? And I think, okay, what could disrupt that or make it more likely? Well, driverless cars. They may even go further. Why do you need a CBD if cars are just moving all over the city? So that challenges us. Mm. Uh, so the S curve is, here's information we know is about problems, well-known problems. Trends are, there's some data, a bit more well-known. The emerging issue is the weak signal. Some even say black swan. But there's little data, but if it comes true, it can be very profound but it gets people to be futures literate. So for a large organization, of course, you want the strategist thinking about the customer experience, customer engagement, but you want some people to be saying what's next. Yes. And they need to have a voice to the CEO at the board. Otherwise their next, their what next ideas become, oh, that's what crazies down and roll on, on floor three do. Yeah. As opposed to, wait a second, 20 of their stuff is nonsense, there's four really good things we can start to work with. With one large trucking organization, we had a one-day workshop like that. And we were clear about the strategy of safer Australia, safer trucks. What's pushing it is uh, you know, um, government legislation. What's stopping it is some of the behavior of individual truck drivers. But the disruptor was, well, what would driverless trucks look like? And the second disruptor right. that really we started to think about at that meeting was bioinformatics. So what if I had information in the chair, the shirt, or some other way to give me real-time information that predicts safety and danger? So that straight away I can tell you if the driver is engaged in, in narcotics, for example, or if they're tired. So 
at the end of that meeting, I remember the head of strategy said, okay, great meeting. Let's all leave. And it wasn't this fun. <laughs> and I looked at the CEO and he goes, this was fun, but this is serious. He was worried the new idea would take away his role in the organization. Right. We were saying, no, no, we're still going to do insurance. But bioinformatics could be our new growth area. Safe for Australia, safe for truck drivers, safe for people. That changes who we are. You understand we'll become a tech data company in 10 years. Look, I think there's a lot of intersection here with one of the big themes of that brands are grappling with now. There's this movement, and I, I, I call it a movement, around uh, brands that are trying to be purpose-led. They want to be purpose-braced. And there's an element of it which is a little bit cynical commercialism on the, in the sense that society now values brands like that. And so they were trying to gravitate to the values of society. And that's, that's valid um, from a straight business perspective. But many of these organizations have been around for a long time. You know, They've been doing what they're doing for a long time. And now this new um, you know, chief marketing officer with shiny shoes wants to tell them they need a new purpose. And as they start to adopt that thinking, they're challenged with how do we define our purpose? What does that look like? And so the example you gave there with safer truck drivers, you know, the, these sorts of narratives become really powerful. And I think Futures has a role to play in helping brands reshape their purpose for tomorrow. Because the truth is that a lot of the thinking that stems from the industrial era and a lot of ways that we engage as businesses now is getting more and more and more dated and the markets are moving far, further and further away from that. So this is, I think will be some interesting concepts for, for a bunch of folk listening to this. I mean, there's two parts of it. So one is just clear commercial, right? So I use emerging issues analysis to figure out what's the next wave. So projects I did 10 years ago for a health insurance company, for a large food beverage company, even 20 years ago, it was very clear. People want to move towards wellness. So one insurance company changed who they were from health insurer to health navigator. Right. And why do they do that? Because, well, people want wellness and they want to be in control of that wellness. And we know the research. If you're more in control of your health, you'll, make, you'll be healthier. You'll make wiser decisions. So you don't feel they're doing it to you. You're creating your health. So agency and participation. And the second part is, I remember the head of one large company, she said, we can't control the markets, but we can shape them based on our decisions. So this purpose, people, planet, prosperity, that becomes a very powerful quadruple bottom line. As we start to imagine, well, what would a world look like that had those? There's a great book, The Spiritual Audit of America, and their conclusion was companies that are purpose-led also do much better. Well, that's right. And I'm writing a little bit about this at the moment because there's almost a couple of categories that they fall into. One is this almost cynical marketing play where you've got, you know, a purported purpose, which is more like a campaign. And it's not in the heartbeat and the DNA in the organization. And so it's got to be inside out. And, and th therefore that leads to the second category, which are brands that are genuine and their brand personality is an externalization of their culture. So right marketing on. comes afterwards, right? That's what you're saying, Aaron. Yeah. Don't do the marketing first. That's once you figure out your purpose, then you figure out how to market as opposed to you market your purpose first. 
That's right. And I often say to people, don't market your purpose unless you are your purpose. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, man, that goes back to who you are. That's where the CLA pillar four is. Yeah. Who are you? What's your narrative? And you focus on, on living that as opposed to someone else's story. So let's talk about that because, you know, obviously you are, one of the things you are known for is the, I'm not sure if inventor is the word, but you are the inventor of causal layered analysis and uh, to great acclaim and taught all over the world now and and very popular method within futures and and something that, you know, I use routinely, particularly when you think about um, change in, in organizational stakeholders and, you layer that into four levels, right? With litany and the system, the worldviews, and then myths and metaphors. Talk us through that. Give us, give us, I guess, the elevator pitch on CLA for folk that are hearing that for the first time. So level one is the most visible, which you can see, right? I mean, number of deaths, for example, right? Right. That's kind of level one analysis. It's visible, it's in the headlines, there's data around it. That's Level listening. two, it's what's causing those deaths. So is it right. lack of a vaccine? Is it, you, feel you do some social science historical analysis, that's causation. Yeah, the system. And level right. three, it's often what's the worldview behind it. How do we see the future? How do we see reality? And that gets deeper for people. Most people only want to look at level one or two. Here's the data, here's what's causing it. What's the deeper cause? Is it our cultural framework in our country, in the world, in myself? And underneath that, there's always a story. There's always a narrative. There's always a metaphor. So we try to go to that level. And if I change my metaphor, then I start to change the system and change how I measure the world. So I remember one large international law enforcement agency, they were looking at their failure at cybercrime. Right. And so... Mm -hmm. Then they looked at the data, why isn't there more uptake on their national strategies? And then once they went to the different stakeholders, they said, oh my God, privacy advocates, citizens, corporations, other agencies have a different story. Citizens say, see no evil, hear no evil. Privacy advocates say, this is one more government overreach. So their national strategy was failing because they didn't look at the different metaphors and worldviews of all the stakeholders. Right. And finally, their own worldview and metaphor, one own worldview was, this is who we are. Their metaphor is, we know everything. <laughs> right. This is a great article by how Microsoft has done well. And I wasn't part of this product project. But they asked the CEO why they increased their value by $80 billion. And he said he did one thing. He said, what was that? He said, our old metaphor was Mr. Know-it-all. Our new metaphors, we're curious learners. And I said, what'd you do next? We said, well, then we said, if that's the case, what do we do? He said, well, we're, then we need to systemically hire different people. So they embarked on a strategy to bring different people in the organization. So this is kind of the shift. And so when they do that, well, change our story, change our strategies, and change how we measure where we're going. And that's yeah. the weak part people don't often do change the story, bit of systemic change, but we still measure the past. And that's one of the hardest with, with, with wicked problems. We want a greener, safer, et cetera world, but we're still measuring only GDP. How do yeah. we bring in mental health? How do we bring in culture? Um, how do we bring in nature? 
So unless we measure the future we want, we count what we can't, we go back to what we did before. So CLA is very clear, change the narrative, change the system, and change what you measure. The contribution of CLA is don't see reality as just one level. The, the scientists, headline people are right, the system engineers are right, the philosophers are right, and the poets are right. Each level is part of our reality, play at all levels. Yeah, okay. That's fundamentally very, very personal, isn't it? Because, yeah. because to change a worldview is to, is to change self, it's to transform self in some ways. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I know at the external level, uh, someone who took our MBS course, Brett Casey, I remember profoundly he said, if we want to change a national deaf strategy, we have to change the metaphor around deafness. Instead of I lost my hearing, he was, I gained a new language. Wow. And we were all like, what did he just say? <laughs> he said, yeah, you all live in this is the deficit. I'm saying, no, this is a new skill. And then from there, he said, okay, if this is a new skill, a new asset, he said, I've gained my deafness. So this is, this is where the narrative can be profound. And then we apply it to ourselves. Yeah. And, and look, you've talked a lot about things like, you know, the scenario, the way that we think about scenarios to create alternative futures, the different levels within that or processes, um, CLA, uh, obviously, one of the things that I found really useful in the way of, of thinking about how to make some of this really pragmatic and steps that can be taken is this process of backcasting. So once you've done the CLA, the scenarios, and, and you come up with your vision of 2030 or 2040, right? Straight away, oh, God, too much. Let's just go home. Great work, right. Thank you. We're going home now. Too big an idea, too often the future, all of that stuff. Then we do something else. So if by 2030, we want to be a bioinformatics company, what happened in 2020? Well, we put in some money around research in bioinformatics. What else happened? Well, in 2023, we had some successes on wearables and truck driving. In 2025, we got an award from governments globally. We had the highest safety rate. 2027, we saw our profits jump up because everyone wanted to learn from us. 2029, actually, we made more money off selling data. Now, how does that story seem? Backcasting, normal planning is pushing a boulder up a mountain. This is taking a stream downstream, a boat downstream. Right. The main thing, there's a jump in perception impossible to what's happened. What did I do? That's that leap of consciousness. Yeah, and you're starting to get into inner visioning here, right? Is that sort of how you might define that? So first of all, you've kind of got a reverse engineering process yes. coming yes. back from your preferred future or your preferred futures yes. or alternative futures. And you and could do then, a backcast on the future you don't want. 2030, right. here's what it looks like. What happened the last 10 years to get there? Wow. Bad CEO, bad advice, wrong technology invested in, mm. forgot to talk to customers. You think, okay, here's how we failed. Now let's do the opposite. That's fascinating. I never, that's why you're the professor of futures and I work in the tech space. Cause you're, that's, you're a very humble person. We did that for <laughs> Australia on the futures of homelessness. I said, design the perfect strategy to ensure homelessness. <laughs> that's, that's a very clever way to, because you're kind of playing devil's advocate on your own worst case scenarios. And, yeah. 
but in a way that's fun and open because you don't want to put people down. Yeah, that's right. So the academic style is who's right, who's wrong. This is saying, no, we're on a journey to a different future. We're co-creating. Let's work together. Yeah. Talk a little bit about inner visioning because it comes back to this very personal thing for people again. And, and I remember in your class, you know, you take people through quite a confronting um, a sort of journey of self in some ways because you've kind of got to get to who you are to be effective in, in, the, in the way that you think and opening your mind and this kind of thing. And inner visioning um, is kind of a foundation piece in some ways is the way I kind of think about it, but how would you describe it? No, I think the way you're saying it is perfectly. So it's saying, okay, here's where I am today. Where do I wish to be tomorrow? And there's techniques developed by Elise Boulding. There's a range of people who work on that. So what we try to do is, okay, you close your eyes, you walk 10 steps, there's a hedge, you go over the hedge. So you're not predicting. And then you start to imagine what that world looks like. And then we take them through a process where you meet your future self. So your future self from 2030 or 2040, you meet that person and they give you advice. So it's a good technique to use. Say if you're in a fight with someone, then you say, okay, what would my 80-year-old wife self say? <laughs> And it wouldn't say to make them wrong even more, right? Or yell at them. Or it would say, well, how do they feel? How do I develop more compassion? How do I find a way forward? Right. So it's trying to go to a different part of who we are. If we have, if we have many selves, a father self, child self, teenager, rebellious self, this is saying, no, let me go to the wisdom part of me. In the future, I meet her or him. That person helps me in my direction. So they give me a message. So the inner visioning is, Yesterday is intense. Where do I wish to be? And you start the inner imagining of it. Now, for those of who are a bit skeptical, remember, you're always imagining a future. There's no one who isn't doing this all the time. We're imagining through our words, our thoughts, often futures we don't want. Discourse frames what's possible. What's possible through our language creates what we see, creates reality. So everyone is doing visioning. It's whether they're doing it purposefully or they're doing it in a way that creates futures they don't want. Right. The inner visioning sets it up. So right. we had one great workshop. I mean, I've used this example in my writing. There's, I mean, there's like a thousand. But the one I remember the most, we were in a room and that person said uh, his metaphor of his reality was an iPhone in a room full of Nokia's. And that's honest. It's authentic, right? But that kind of yeah. sets up a, Tension yeah. with the other senior leaders, with your board, with the CEO. You know, no one wants to be felt, well, I'm the no kid, he's the iPhone. <laughs> authentic, but then he said, okay, but that narrative is based on his system of above, below. Right. And he's in a hierarchical organization. It's very clear who's the board and who's not. Right. And now, so then I said, okay, what's the better metaphor? So he did the visioning went over the hedge and said, okay, the new story is co-created chip maker. He's now not at the level of the technology you can see who's gone deeper. They're creating the intelligence, the chips behind it. So now he's moved up in the organization very quickly. And it's okay, now you've done the rational part. Now go further. So we had him close his eyes, go to an inner space where everything is quiet. Now what do you see? So now he's not going from his rational, the world he wants rational. He's going from his deepest self 
and all we saw was a warm, loving sun. And then as we unpacked it, we said, well, actually, the solution, the number one is iPhone and Nokia's. Solution number one, right? Solution number two is co-created chip maker better. Solution number three, he has to operate from a framework where he's in a unity with the people around him. So he's gone from deeper spiritual intelligence, emotional intelligence. And that's what I get more and more. As people go deeper, the technical skill of birth, marketing, those are great. But now we're going to deepest skills, which are essentially spiritual skills. It's interesting. We get back to some very um, age-old wisdom here, don't we, in terms you know, things like the humblest amongst us will be the greatest and those sorts of paradoxes. And in this case, it's kind of like, you know, you have to be prepared to be vulnerable in order to be truly effective as a leader. And that's a confronting place for many people to go. And for me, definitely. We, we, you know, we always want to be right. I certainly do. Yeah, for sure. Oh my God, what did I just say? I am always right, Sahel. Yeah. There's like... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the future is safe there in a way. It's yeah. a space none of us need to be right because we're co-creating something. This is fascinating, Sahel, and I feel like I could do this all day long and all week. And given the state of affairs outside right now, maybe it's a year for lots of deep reflection on this stuff. And I hope that people listening in take that opportunity as well. I would encourage people that are listening or watching to this um, to, you know, watch it back and take some notes and take some time and really think about it. So Hal, one of the things that I try and do towards the end of every show, if you could leave advice, if you could leave anything for people tuning into this today, what would you leave with them? And it can be anything. Oh, I mean, I hate to be Joseph Campbell here, but it was really following your <laughs> bliss, you know? I mean, <laughs> I remember when I was in my teens and wanted to get into futures and meditation, most people around me says, what a stupid thing to do. Yeah. And I was like pain from it, right? Because I really enjoyed meditation. I really enjoyed doing this futures part. He said, well, you know, there's no way you're going to do anything with that. And, and, and so, I mean, they may have been right, but I really felt there was something there. So I think that was really what you really enjoy doing and you try to stay with that. Yeah. And then the other stuff is easy. I like that example you gave before that it wasn't, I think someone said, we're not just reacting to the market, but we can shape the market. Yes. And yes. we're not reacting to the circumstances of our lives. We shape the circumstances of our lives. Yes, yeah. And, and, and the triangle is saying, here's where you can, and look at where you can't. And what does that mean? Yeah, very practical. So Hal, it really only just remains for me to thank you so much for coming on the show. This is such an area, and I, I know that some people look at me sideways when I say this, but I don't think that a strategy is a strategy without being able to think critically about futures. I don't think this is an input to strategy. I think this is strategy. And so it's such a privilege and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for your work and your contribution to my career. And I know that you would have inspired a whole lot of people today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Aaron. That was great. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Evolve with Aaron Spinley. To ensure that you never miss an episode, please subscribe on YouTube or on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for hanging out. Until next time.